And when you learn to live without expectations, everything in your life becomes a gift. But when you have expectations, you draw lines everywhere, beneath which nothing's acceptable as a gift. Welcome to the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. Uh, my name is David Bloom, and I'm with my co-host, Alan Briggs. What's up, man? I'm excited for another episode with you. Yeah. Today we've got an awesome episode. It's deep, it's rich, it's raw. We have William Paul Young on the episode, and you might not know his name, but I bet I could almost guarantee that you know some of his work. He is the author of The Shack, which was a best-selling book, really kind of took the Christian world by storm. Um, And you've probably heard about it, you've maybe read it, and maybe you have some opinions on it. But this story is not so much about The Shack, but William's journey to writing the shack and it's it's deep it's raw and i think um it's so important for us as leaders to see stories of redemption like this and so alan you got the privilege of talking with william uh what did you guys talk about yeah i mean really he he hit rock bottom in his life and he shares so openly with vulnerability about that and he didn't write this from the mountaintop he wrote this from the valley floor from the the struggle of real life and really from being found out within his sin and his burdens kind of coming up to the surface. And I always love those stories where God chooses to do something so uniquely. And uh, you probably don't know uh, the story behind the shack. And again, it was criticized by some, but millions and millions of people um, read this and watched this for a reason. I mean, it struck a nerve in so many of us. And I think that reason is redemption and restoration. That's really what I heard in his story. But I love the vulnerability. And I think this has beautiful things to offer uh, so many listeners on that. And uh, it's interesting, David, how we think about content. What content is going to change people's lives, is going to change the world even. Uh, and you have some interesting thoughts on content. Can you share those with us? Yeah. So, with William's story, he didn't intend for this to be, you know, blasted out to the world. He wrote it privately some for some friends as kind of a therapeutic process to deal with his his pain and his woundedness and his brokenness. And he sent it on to a few of his friends. And then that was then pushed out and it caught like wildfire and a publisher picked it up. And so one thing that I think I need to be reminded of, and maybe a lot of our writers and content creators that are listening is that we often think about the audience. Who's this going to resonate with? Who's this going to reach? Is this going to be a message that um, catches on? And is it going to be a wave that we get to, to ride as an author? But really, a lot of the time, God wants to work through our creative process for ourselves, for our souls, for our healing, um, for us to process through maybe some junk in our life or maybe some things that we're celebrating, but it's a it's a time to process. And I love that that's part of his story. And it's a good reminder for us as content creators to not get ahead of our skis, to actually engage with the process of writing and developing our thoughts and getting it down on paper or getting it onto our computer. There is a healing process in it. And I think that's obvious from William's story. And I love that. And it's a good reminder for me. And, and hopefully it's a good reminder to our listeners as well. If you're somebody that listens to podcasts at 1.5 speed, which I'm often guilty of, go ahead and slow this down to 1x speed. There's some amazing things in here, stories of transformation, and I think this will breed hope in you. And as always, if this resonates, go ahead and share it with a friend. So enjoy my conversation with William Paul Young. We've got a great conversation for you today. We've got Paul Young. Uh, you probably know Paul from the book The Shack. Uh, Paul does so many uh, different things and is actually just sharing about uh, some events that that he hosts around dialogue, around getting leaders around tables. So in many ways, we are kindred spirits. Paul, thanks for jumping on the podcast today. Uh, honored to be with you. Um, look forward to it very much. Well, I've uh, just really admired your honesty and um, you know, kind of the man behind the books. Um, there's so much depth there. And um, you've shared just about... Uh, some of the pain that you experienced growing up, growing up on the mission field. And would you be willing to let listeners into just some of that pain that you experienced growing up? Yeah, sure. And a lot of that is what is behind uh, the imagery of the shack anyway, for those of you who are familiar with the book or the movie. And um, 
you know, I'm, I'm a firstborn missionary kid, preacher's kid, and my people are modern evangelical fundamentalist holiness people. So very uh, rigid, very strict, and um, uh, have, a, have a view of God that is not painless. <laughs> I mean, uh, Jesus was a good guy, but he came to save us from God the Father. And um, I was less than a year old. We moved into the highlands of New Guinea. My parents were pioneer missionaries. My mom was a medical missionary, but my dad really had come right out of logging and before that hunting and trapping, believe it or not. And um, so he was kind of designed for being in uh, jungle areas that nobody else had ever been before, that, that at least wasn't indigenous to those, those areas. And uh, so at a year old, I'm in a brown culture growing up and thinking that I'm brown until they ship me off to boarding school. Found out I was white, which was a huge disappointment. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, I say that, it sounds funny, but there is so much truth to that. Um, for third culture kids and missionary kids, you know, kids that grew up in a different culture than their passport culture, there's a lot of issues that come with um, the question of belonging. And um, the belonging is um, is a deeply rooted um, issue. And if we don't find someone to belong to, we never belong anywhere. Because the thing about third culture kids is by the time they move from the culture they grow up in back to their passport culture, they don't fit there. And they don't, and they don't have a sense of belonging. And then they go back to the culture they grew up with and they don't fit there anymore either. So it's, um, it's a big deal. When I wrote Crossroads, the, the big issue in Crossroads is the issue of belonging. And um, that's a work of fiction, but the issue is belonging. But um, as a child, I encountered both wonder and tragedy. Um, um, you know, I had a writer who wrote me a, a letter when the shack first came out. And she's a writer in Nashville, Leanne Stewart. She said, I don't know anything about you, don't know your backstory, don't know your history, but my sense is that Missy, who is the main character in the book and movie, um, it's the main character's daughter, who's abducted and then murdered. Um, but uh, Leanne says, uh, my sense is that Missy represents something murdered in you as a child, probably your innocence, and Mackenzie is you as the adult trying to deal with it. And that's exactly right. Both their names on purpose spell map, Mackenzie Allen Phillips, Melissa Ann Phillips. And um, I did that to cross those two characters um, as, as part of a journey, but different maps. And um, so uh, part of my great sadness was that my father didn't have a chip for being a dad. I, I'd said he'd come out of the logging, hunting, trapping world. And, you know, he had been totally and thoroughly broken by the time that he ever became a father. And I didn't know that. I just knew that he terrified me. He was an abusive disciplinarian. Um, I felt absolutely worthless uh, with regard to him. I could never do anything right. And most of the time, I couldn't even figure out what I'd done wrong. Um, but he was um, an angry young man and uh, seemed huge and powerful. So I didn't want anything to do with him. Um, I was growing up Donnie anyway, which is the tribal culture. So I didn't I hadn't, I didn't have an affinity with my parents. <laughs> After I came back from the first four months at boarding school, I called my mother Aunt Betty um, because there were two women at boarding school who were named Betty. And one of them, actually, her whole name was Betty White. So, so it was like, oh, that's what you call white women, mm. Bettys. <laughs> wow. And my, mom, my mom's name's not Betty. And, um, and then... Uh, sexual abuse started in the tribal culture uh, about the time I was five. That's why Missy in the shack is five, um, as well as a, a niece, Jennifer, who was killed the day after her fifth birthday. And, um, and then um, I was shipped to boarding school at six, and the big boys would come at night and molest the little boys. And I don't know what it is about sexual abuse. I, I, I don't know the depth of it, but I can tell you that sexual abuse will really ripped the fabric of the human soul to shreds. And, um, and it implants, along with all the other messages that I got, it implanted a very deep sense of, of shame. And so shame became the dominant world in which um, I, I found myself trying to swim in and covered over by a thin layer of perfectionist performance. Because a lot of times that's, that's what we do with shame. We try to figure out 
how can I perform my way into the affection or approval of someone else? And that's, that's the imagery of the shack. The shack is the house that someone helps you build or that people help you build. And it's your own heart. It's your own soul. It's your own internal world. And, um, and I'm thrilled when I hear um, how people's inside house is a, a beautiful and habitable and a welcoming, hospitable place. But for a whole bunch of us, it, it just turned into the place of damage. And so it's a shack. It's a, where you store then your addictions and you hide your secrets and it's held together by lies and you never want anybody to ever come into that place and um, but you can't get away from it you can you can build a facade outside of it that you can try to uh, project as being who you are but there's this constant whisper that all you are is you know you're just a piece of shit and and then on top of that um, you know coming back to Canada when I was about 10 years old we traveled a lot my dad was an itinerant pastor and I went to 13 schools before I graduated high school. But I, I was trying to figure out who I was in a world I didn't understand at all. And um, then uh, uh, on top of that is all the theology. You know, the, the language of my people's theology was that the truth of your being is that you are a piece of shit. I call it post. The Greek word is skubala. Paul uses mm. it. <laughs> so so um, it's when he says, you know, He's talking about the facade, all the things that he that he placed his identity in, being a Jew of the Jews, you know, firstborn of his tribe and and um, all of this. And he says, I consider it all scuba. Mm. You know, it's just the King James is dung. And uh, I think NIV is nothing, but it's it's shit. And and um, but that's that's the underlying belief, you know, that. And now you've got to try to create a righteousness and live a life that's supposedly holy and, and become a truth teller. But lying has become a survival skill. I mean, it, it's a lot of people aren't trying to be duplicitous. They lie because they're trying to stay safe. Mm. And um, we could talk about that a lot, but it's really true. And a lot of people, you know, the fact that they lie just increases the amount of shame that they, they are experiencing. So it just adds to the whisper of accusation. But for many, many people, lying um, was a survival skill to try to try to find a way to stay alive. And, and once you adopt survival skills, like hypervigilance and lying and all that kind of stuff, they are hard friends to give up. And, um, and you know, part of the kindness in my own experience is that God has never ripped my survival mechanisms out of my hands. Um, and, uh, but loved me to the place where I was willing to let them go. And, and I wish that was an event, you know, rather than a process, but it's always a process. Mm. Well, thanks for your honesty and vulnerability. You know, that's a gift. When you give that to others, there are people listening, um, maybe in tears saying, that's my story too. Well, then I, then I drug it into the rest of my relationships. See, and that's where it got really messy and, and I drug it into my marriage, and Kim didn't know that there was a shack inside. She just she fell for the facade because I happened to be actually pretty smart and creative, which only empowered my ability to hide. And um, and so I drug it into my marriage. And then, you know, I thank God I married who I did. Um, that was a gift from God. That was grace because she's a very powerful woman, and and she paid an awfully high price uh, for my healing. Not fair at all. But, um, but that's, that's a whole nother part of the story. So how'd you journey toward wholeness, Paul? Uh, painfully, incrementally, you know, like they say, you know, religious people believe in hell, but spiritual people have been there. And uh, <laughs> I, I would love extreme soul makeover, you know, send me to Disney World and fix me by the time I get back. Give me a week, man. Yeah, really. No, I don't even want a week. And, uh, <laughs> and but this, you know, the, Mackenzie spends a weekend in the shack that totally changes who he is in terms of his understanding of who he is. That weekend represents eleven years for me, and it's not that there weren't movements uh, all throughout my life because I can look back and track them now, um, and I can say, oh yeah, okay. So I was struggling with this and this and this. I just was. You know, I was just trying to make it through the next day, 
and then, you know, maybe recommit my life back to God so that maybe I could have another shot at heaven. And, um, but uh, how, I, how I moved toward wholeness was that I first had to be exposed. And that, that is not a pleasant journey, let me tell you. I would never want to go through that kind of thing again. And yet, mm. the unexposed is the unhealed. You know, everything that hurts you and then spills over and damages the relationships in your life, everything is something that has driven you to isolation. Lies drive you to aloneness. Um, uh, addiction drives you to aloneness. Shame, for sure. Shame will even drive your eyes to the floor so that you can't look in another person's face for fear that you might see the look of disgust in their face that you see in the mirror. And so, you know, a darkness is aloneness. Isolation is aloneness. And, and um, the only way toward wholeness is to come out of that which has separated you in your own delusions. And um, so you have to be exposed. And some of us are brave enough that we finally admit we're such a mess and ask for help, but a whole bunch of us have to be caught. And that, that being caught is a severe mercy. And that's what happened to me. I got caught. And, and I got caught by Kim, my wife. And, hmm. and, um, that started January 4th, 94, uh, at about two 30 in the afternoon. And, um, and I got a one sentence phone call from her and, and I had a pretty good facade. I mean, I was teaching Bible. I was, I was working, I had a business. I was doing the teaching on the side stuff, but I, and people would have said, he's a good father. He's a good husband. And because I read the books, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the internal capacity to love well. But I, I, I knew how to read, and I, knew, and I wanted to. It's not that I didn't want to. And I didn't want the duplicity of a facade, but I, I didn't know how to deal with the shame. And so I'm, I'm hoping that if I could just perform perfectly, that one day that facade would actually become who I am. And, of course, that's impossible because the facade is all false from the very beginning. So mm-hmm. I get a one-sentence phone call from Kim, and it just says, I'm waiting for you at your your office and I know. And what she knew was I was in a three month affair with one of her best friends. And, and I blew up the world. And, uh, and, but it exposed me completely exposed the, the absolute futility and the incomprehensible duplicity of the facade. And it exposed me to the core. You know, there's a verse that says the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, has come to convict the world, which includes me and you, come to convict the world of brokenness. And, um, and that word convict in the Greek is the same word as the word to expose. And exposure is not to humiliate you. Exposure is, is to move you in the direction of healing because the unexposed is the unhealed. You are and I am as sick as the secrets that we keep. And it's terrifying. Any of you listening out there that have a whole, you know, closet full or basement full of your inside house full of secrets, you know how terrifying the thought of exposure is. And uh, what do they say? Liars have to have good memories. You know, (laughs) it's very complex to live with, um, with a compilation of secrets because you have to remember who you told what to or what what lie you said to whom and then just hope that you can keep moving fast enough so that nobody can catch you and um and eventually when you when your facade starts breaking down which it always will then it's time to move somewhere new and start over it's time to divorce the 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 existing set of circumstances um or people even and uh, find a new one that you can begin to maybe craft a, a facade that is not as easy to detect. I mean, that's, that's the trap that so many of us find ourselves in. And then down the road, I know elderly men and women, but mostly men in, in terms of my relationships, who they are dying. In fact, they are just hoping that they will die. Um, you know, they're... They're looking for a way out rather than face, you know, because they've got children now and grandchildren and, and, and the pile is so big, they're afraid that if they open up that door, they will be crushed under the enormity of it all. 
And so they're just hanging on and barely surviving. It's such a mm. sad way to live. Wow. So what caused you to take your pain and put it into a book? Huh. Tell us about well, where'd you get that idea from? Well, uh, believe it or not, from Kim. And um, I've, I've always been a, a, someone who writes stuff, you know, but I never, ever intended to be a published author. I mean, it just never had crossed my mind. And, and, um, and so, you know, when, when I got caught, when I had to, I, and I hit the bottom. And when you hit the bottom, you're not pointing fingers at anybody. You're not saying, you know, some of this is your crap too. You know, you don't care anymore. You just know that if you can't find a way to change, it's done. And suicide had always been a, you know, a, a, a distant relative, a companion. And um, it's the last way to run away before you hit the bottom, you know. And, and I didn't kill myself. I, I hit the bottom, which meant I, I wasn't going to treat adultery as the new secret. I was going to, Kim's dad lived with us. I mean, he was living with us at the time. He lived with us for 17 years mm. and she has five sisters and two brothers and a very tight knit community. And, and I mean, it, it, it wasn't an, even a conversation, but I was done with secrets. And when I drove across town to face Kim, cause that was my choice, either face Kim or kill myself. Cause I wasn't going to run away anymore. I'm too tired. I'm too exhausted by by all the falseness, you know, it just, I'm done. So I'm either, I'm going to face Kim or I'm going to kill myself. And I don't even know how I made it across town, but I pull in there and she just lights into me, um, for about four hours. And, and I say to her, you know, Kim, if we're going to do this, I need to tell you every secret that I have. And naively she says, bring it on. She has no idea. And it takes me four days to tell her everything that she didn't know. And she wanted to know details about everything. And I told her everything. And it destroyed her. I mean, she said, I will never believe another word that comes out of your mouth the rest of your life. And I, I go over to the yellow pages. I pull the yellow pages off the shelf. I look under counselors, you know, and I start with the A's. Kim didn't ask me to do this. I knew I can't do this. I can't, I can't fix me. I, I got to get some help. And so I just start with the A's under counselors and I just track my way down. And I run into one called Agape Youth and Family Services. And they have a little ad over on the other side of the page. And it says, we specialize in sexual abuse histories. And I call them up, total strangers in Portland. And I make an appointment and... Uh, Byron does the intake, who is the owner of the, of the practice. And he says, you know, I think I got the guy for you. And he introduces me to a man who became my, my therapist and then my friend, and that was Scott Mitchell. And um, I'm sitting in front of Scott and I go like, my life is over, you know. And um, I, I don't need someone asking me how I feel about it. What I need is to, I need to know, can you get me from A to Z? And he says, yeah, I can, but it's going to take a year and a half. And I say, I'm in. He said, Paul, everybody that sits where you are, they always say they're in. But after a few months, when they start feeling a little more in control, a little better about themselves, they all bail out right before the really hard stuff. And I said, I'm not, I'm not leaving until you tell me I'm done. I mean, I, I was at the bottom. And, um, and I, in fact, he, Scott was very right about four months into it. I just about killed myself hmm. because it was just so, so horrendously hard, but we didn't make the adultery, the new secret. You know, I faced her dad. I faced, you know, our two oldest of our six kids went through it with us cause they were old enough. And then over the years, I, I'm the one that told our other kids. And then I faced her family. I faced my family. I faced the community and man, I mean, it was unbelievably difficult. And, um, and so incrementally, slowly, I'm working with Scott. You know, I call Kim every day and tell her. She let me stay in the house because as furious as she was, she believed I'd actually hit the bottom. And um, so, you know, I call her up and say, this is what Scott and I are working on. Sometimes I'm bawling like a baby. This is what Scott and I are working on, you know. Mm. And every day she'd say, yeah, right, whatever. Like. You know what? The thing about the process of reconciliation, if it ever happens, is very different than forgiveness. 
And forgiveness is one thing. Forgiveness is for the sake of the victim so that they're freed from having to carry around the corpse of a memory that poisons all their other relationships. But um, reconciliation is the rebuilding of trust. And when, if that ever happens, it's an absolute miracle. But it's for the sake of the perpetrator. And, but it can't happen if you don't own what you've done and you don't begin to tell the truth about it very specifically and then ask for forgiveness and change over time. That's the piece. And, and the perpetrator never has a right to dictate a timetable or an expectation for reconciliation. The, the beauty of this is that you can actually forgive someone and never trust them again. And that's, that's helpful for boundaries. A lot of Christians, I think, think that forgiveness means you're supposed to now trust them. And, and that's not true at all. So incrementally, you know, I'm going like, Kim's never going to believe anything that actually changes. And, and that was okay. I thought, this is the way I'm going to live the rest of my life. I'm going to work my jobs. I'm going to do what's right, do the next thing in front of me, do my internal work, which is the work of the kingdom, because the kingdom of God is in you. And, uh, and live inside the grace of one day at a time, because it's all I got. And, uh, and so, you know, slowly, incrementally, there was a thawing on Kim's part. She would take a risk, then she'd pull back. And, and man, um, she is um, a powerful person. If she had a good crap detector to begin with that I managed to get by, there was no getting, I mean, she could sniff uh, um, any kind of grayness to the, your truth-telling, which was a huge benefit. Part of the reason I'm as healthy as I am is because the intensity of Kim's fury. And so, you know, slowly things begin to shift. I, I change. I begin to allow men in my life. Men who men are the ones who've done most of the damage in my life. And, um, and that was healing. And Scott and I spent intensely nine months. He said it was going to take a year and a half, but nine months into it, he said, uh, you're done. And I'm like, what? It's only been nine months. He goes, Paul, you know, you don't know this, but the therapeutic community around here is very aware of you. And, and when we talk, we acknowledge that we have never seen anybody work this hard and stick with it. Well, it was because it was life or death for me. And, uh, and I did the work. I worked hard at whatever it was. And I, I you know, other than the, that one little kind of two-week period in which I almost killed myself, almost took a trip to Mexico City so that I could kill myself. And, um, and, and, you know, maybe the only good thing Paul Young could ever do in his life was to kill himself far enough away from his family so that his kids didn't find his body. Mm -hmm. And, uh, golly. So, um, time moves forward and Kim starts saying, and she's, she did it for about four years. She, she said, I said to her, I'm never going to speak publicly again. Never going to do it. I'm not willing to take the chance of hurting people. And she, she'd go like, you know what, I, I think you will, but it'll be completely different than it used to be. And I go like, no. And then she kept saying, you know, someday, as a gift for our children, would you write something that puts in one place how you think, because you think outside the box. And later, by the way, she, when the book was put in print, she said, you know, when I asked you to do this, I was thinking four to six pages. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Overshot the runway a little said, bit. Yeah, right, really, you know, but, but the year I turned 50, which was after 11 years of working on this stuff, the year I turned 50, which was when I stepped into that year, it was like, oh, I think this is my year of Jubilee, you know, um, which if, if you know the Old Testament scriptures, the 50th year was a, was a year in which all debts were, were forgiven and repaid and, and, and. It was a year of, of celebration. I finally felt healthy enough to do this thing that Kim had been asking me. But the, the crazy thing was that I, we had lost everything as part of the healing journey. <laughs> we had lost everything financially in, in my 11th year, 2004. Wow. And, uh, and so, you know, but it was a huge healing thing. The, I think of... Uh, the healing journey is a spiral downwards into the depths of your, your soul or into the, the, the house on the inside. And, and that's why you see territory that looks the same, but it's actually not. 
because uh, God doesn't build bridges going nowhere. You're not going in circles. You're going in a spiral. And some of the, some of the layers are very, very close to each other. So you, you see similar territory. But uh, through that 11 years, the depth had to do with fear and trust. My life had been, and, and shame. So fear and shame on the one side and learning how to trust on the other, which was monumental. And I think this is why I was such a good religious kid, because you, to be religious, you don't actually have to trust God or anyone. You just have to know what you're supposed to do. And, um, and for me to learn how to trust meant the dismantling of all sorts of lies about myself, about people, about God, for sure. And um, so my 50th year, I'm going like, oh, my gosh, I think I'm one of the healthiest people that I know. I mean, I had no addictions left. And I'm not talking about porn and all those other things that were definitely a part of my, you know, my addictive personality at that uh, growing through, through, the, through my lifetime. But I had none of that. I, I'm not, I, and I wasn't addicted to doing something great for God, which was a religious addiction that it was a holdover. I called some of those addiction gold-chained addiction. It's a quote from Bruce Coburn, mm. a musician and, and singer. He, he got a line that says, though chains be of gold, they are chains all the same. And, um, and I had a bunch of gold-chained ones that were linked to pleasing my dad and and doing something great for God and all that. And all of that was gone uh, by the time I turned 50. And I was working three jobs. We were living in a little tiny rental house with four of our six kids still home. And, and, um, and I was completely content. I was working hard, but, but we were surrounded by enough. And, and, um, and that, we had nothing materially. And that year, I had nothing to give my kids for Christmas literally. And, and yet I felt healthy enough to do this thing that Kim had been asking me to do. And that was to write something. So on the train to one of my three jobs, mostly on the train, I wrote, I wrote an entire manuscript, got it done before Christmas, got some money at Christmas. And I was able to go down to office depot and on their photocopier print 15 copies of the shack. And, um, so not only did I have no addictions, I had no secrets. There was nothing that that Kim or the kids or my friends didn't know. And, and I had become a child for the first time in my life. You know, when I think a lot of times when kids are sexually abused, they lose their capacity to be a child. Everything is about staying safe. And, um, and, uh, and at some point that there has to be a, unless you become like a child, right? There has to be a restoration of that childness. And that had happened for me the year, and I recognized it the year I turned 50. And I also was content just to stay in one day's grace. Joy had become a constant companion, and that's because joy is in the present. And if you are a future tripper, you don't stay present enough to experience joy or only in pieces. And, um, and I wrote a story. And, and it's, I made the 15 copies. Those 15 copies did everything that I wanted that book to do. Um, I had no, no thought to publish, no thought for anything beyond giving it as a Christmas present to my kids. My friends got the extra copies and I went back to work and then my friends started giving it away and we put a little collection together, made 15 more copies. I started getting emails that are like off the hook that people just telling me their stories and what's going on in their world. And it started this whole chain reaction that became the phenomenon of the shack. What do you think so. resonated so deeply in there with so many people? Um, the loss, for one, I think the loss between a parent and a child is the deepest loss a human being can experience. And, and it didn't sugarcoat it. There was no, you know, uh, there was no agenda. The book is so human. The questions are real. When um, Sam Worthington, who played Mackenzie in the movie, when he was asked about his own spirituality and his own spiritual journey, he said to the interviewer, he said, you want to you know what my spiritual journey is? Watch the movie. Those are all my questions. And um, questions about loss and the goodness of God and and how, how all that works together. So I think it resonated on many different levels because the book is very layered. And I've, I've got friends who read it 15 times and they still say, 
I didn't see that. And I always say, well, you were behind a tree last time, mm. you know. And um, when you move, you see some, you see the landscape differently, even though the landscape hasn't intrinsically changed. And, um, and the same with the shack. So people have gotten all sorts of things out of it. Some of it that I didn't even write. And, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, and yeah, yeah, it's part of the beauty of, of fiction where, or art in general, you, you create more space than you actually use. And, it, and people come and they bring their stuff to it and are able to hear uh, within the context of their own space. And it's really a beautiful thing. As long as it doesn't turn into propaganda, which unfortunately my people are famous for, is taking art and putting a hooky message in it so it becomes propaganda and then it loses its artistic um, veracity. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think people related in terms of just the struggle and the story and the fury and the anger and and the loss and and the penetration of love and then many 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 people it was such a shocking in the best sort of way um, uh, narrative about the character and nature of God that it just freed so many people to step beyond the little religious compartmentalizations that. Uh, they had been indoctrinated with, and and it lit fires everywhere. Um, and yeah, it bothered a whole bunch of folks, not a whole bunch, but a pretty loud group, mostly of my own people, you know, and a lot of them wouldn't even read the book and were bad about it. Sure. And, well, uh, so how did you, yeah. how did you handle that criticism? Oh, well, one is I already knew who I was. So it's not, it's not like they're saying anything that I, you know, I'm not trying to protect anything. I don't have a an identity in the shack. The shack didn't give me an identity. You know, my journey got me to the place where my identity was secure, regardless of what I did or couldn't do. And um, and so my worth, my value, my significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, love. The book didn't give me any of that. That was in place. So if when people attacked me, it was like, wow, that's interesting. You know. And, um, and it's, and, but I got what a reputation. I already screwed my reputation royally. Well, guys, as we've been doing here on the podcast, we're bringing, uh, some of our coaching clients onto the podcast. And so I've got a leader, a pastor communicator from Minnesota with us, Austin Walker, Austin, thanks for jumping on the podcast, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, you've grown a ton through coaching. It's been really fun to watch. Uh, yeah. So why in the world did you pursue coaching? What was going on in your brain that brought you to that moment? Well, what brought me to coaching was a, a friend of mine actually was connected with with coaching. And uh, through talking with him about what was going on in life and uh, what's going on in uh, pr- my professional world, I, uh, I had had probably the hardest nine months, um, in ministry, I've been in ministry probably, uh, coming up on 15 years and had had the hardest nine months, um, of ministry yet. I went from, uh, from a five person, uh, staff team to me being the solo staff person at the church, um, in a matter of six months through some good circumstances and some real like crazy circumstances. And so, um, it wasn't one big explosion, but it was just a, a handful of circumstances that, uh, culminated and uh, threw me into a pretty crazy tailspin, and uh, found myself questioning, "Man, what uh, what's the future look like? Do I have what it takes to go long term?" And through talking with this buddy of mine, he said, "Hey, have you ever thought about uh, getting involved in some coaching? See if you get some clarity, uh, maybe get some things um, looking down the road uh, for what could be in your future." And so, uh, yeah, called called up Alan and uh, talked with him, and uh, that's that's kind of where the the journey began, I guess. Yeah, man, we we started quickly, and it was uh, it was obvious we'd spent time together uh, serving student pastors and, and youth workers in your home state of Minnesota, and then kind of right after that, just realizing there is a lot of complexity in your life right now, and a lot of change right now, a huge hunger for yeah. clarity. And I remember that first session um, was actually kind of like, all right, here are even some of the big decisions, and sometimes it's hard to yeah. even figure out. What directions could this even go? So it's been a joy, man, just to watch you um, get healthy, navigate, like you said, a lot of complex change, um, and really kind of fight to um, a spot of of health and really of a lot of confidence in your leadership. So it's been really fun to watch, man. But are there one or two ways 
that you feel like you've grown the most uh, through our coaching sessions together? I think probably the, the, the major thing was just uh, for me was just hearing over and over again, you continually communicated to me, like how you're feeling is normal. Like in these, in the crazy circumstances that you're experiencing, like it's normal to feel disoriented. It's normal to feel, feel tired. Um, and so probably the big moment for me was uh, for you really put like concrete deadlines on things that I felt were incredibly ambiguous and so you kind of asked me kind of our first session, you said, if nothing else changes, if nothing's changes, how long do you feel like you can continue on with this pace? And I'd never really thought about that question. But in that moment, I, I gave you a number that was about 50 days away. And I can remember thinking as soon as I said that date, like, it's crazy how just that, that question made me immediately think man, I'm 50 days away from completely burning out and, and losing this calling that I have in my life. And so that was a, a major paradigm shift for me. And it was, it was crazy how, I mean, you don't know me um, really, really intricately and you don't walk side by side with me every single day. Uh, but to know that you had that right question was really, really big. And then you offered me um, the Ica guy where it was the big Venn diagram um, helping me kind of see uh, what is uh, what's my calling, um, what am I good at, what does the world need, and then figuring out what are the overlapping um, areas that that I can be doing, and what needs to be making uh, money and supporting my family, and what's just something that I can be doing as a calling, um, as a volunteer, and outside of my my vocation. Yeah, that was big, and we say that we are Holy Spirit centered coaching, where you know one eyes on the Spirit, one eyes on what you're. Um, you know, doing changes that you need to make, but tools are, are so important. So I do remember that tool being one that was just helpful to kind of pull apart um, and really detangle is the word that we use. And really watching you detangle was fun. So Austin, fill in some gaps for us. How did that lead on kind of the upward journey for you of feeling like you're really leading out of some confidence and a lot of clarity? And I'd say even excitement right now in your leadership. What happened from then to this moment right now? I think I think it separated for me uh, the things that I'm good at, the things that I, I do to to make money, and then the things that I would do no matter what uh, happens in my life, no matter if it's a if it's something I'm getting paid for or not. What are the things that I'm doing? And so it's really pushed uh, pushed together for me um, my passions and the things that I'm excited about. I love being a pastor. I love people. I love student pastors. I love developing people. And so really through through kind of separating those things out it's given me the ability to then push them back together um, in, in a way that, that really actually makes sense. It was kind of like this scattered idea of a lot of different things working in, in kind of silos, but after pulling them apart and looking kind of rotating a little bit, I was able to fit them back together to make a little bit more kind of synergy on how those things work together. And so figuring out how I can be a pastor and develop and disciple people along with loving and caring for student pastors and also delivering content and communicating things that God has put on my heart. They used to be so separate and it was hard for me to compartmentalize. Um, but really through going through that process, they really have started to fit together and figure out kind of what's the common thread uh, that I can find a way to, to, to move forward and find to, to really maximize the way that God's wired me and what he's put on my life. Well, man, it's been incredible to watch. And you know that so much of our calling is to grow fruit on other people's trees and to help people become who they're uniquely designed uh, to be. And so to watch breakthrough in your life, when you're really, as you describe it, Austin, you were kind of at the edge of breakdown, but really it was breakthrough. And so many times it's right there on the edge where you feel like, man, I just may throw in the towel. This is too complex. It's too hard, uh, too much change. And really what was cool is just to see you're really at the edge of breakthrough, putting some things together. So Austin, man, it's been a joy. Looking forward to serving some student pastors with you uh, again this summer. And guys, if you are listening, there are a lot of complexities in your life right now. For pastors, business leaders, nonprofit leaders, does not matter. COVID-19, we didn't see it coming. The amount of change has been rapid. And if there's any way that our coaching team can serve you in the midst of this, whether it's one-on-one -on -one coaching, we're putting some cohorts together for you this spring. We'd love for you to jump in. So head on over to stayforth.com backslash coaching to explore a little bit of that. Austin, it's fun to watch you grow. We are in your corner. We're huge cheerleaders for you, man. Keep up the good work. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. So you're thinking, I have nothing, I have nothing else to lose. I, I am whole. I am me. And so those didn't really gain too much traction in your soul? 
No, not, not at all. I didn't read the good press. I didn't read the bad press. It was just like, um, okay. And if, if I related to people one-on-one, -on -one, then a lot of times we could work it out. We could, do, we could at least make some, some movement. But the only time it got hard, and, it, and um, um, I mean, not reading the bad press is extraordinarily helpful because you got nothing to react to, right? Yeah. You have to go look at, if you want to get pissed off, go looking for something to be pissed off about, you know, and then, then, then you will. And if, if you don't engage with most of this stuff, it's just temporary anyway. And a lot of times people out of their own hurt are, are stating their own fear. They're not talking about me. They're telling me about themselves and, uh, and where they're stuck and where they're hurt and where they're lost, you know, in their own thinking. Um, the only time it got hard is when, and it's only been Christians who did this, um, but they went after my kids. Mm. And, and that was hard because I, I think there were people who realized that I didn't care about what they were saying. I mean, I mean, I'd listen to see if maybe they had something to say that was actually helpful or I could give me better language or maybe I was saying something that was a mistake or whatever. So I, I could listen that way. But, um, but I, I, didn't, I didn't take it like they, were act they actually knew me and, and were, were making statements about me. But when they went after my kids, man, that was rough because it hurt them. And um, I mean, some folks withdrew lifelong relationships of their kids from my kids because they didn't want their kids contaminated by my kids. Mm. And, um, and, and there's been a lot of resolution in most of those since then. But, the, you know, people are people. And, and when they start feeling fearful, they start uh, spewing the poison that is sitting inside their own soul. And if, if, if you don't know that, if you think that their spewing is actually an attack against you, then you will engage. And that's where all the war comes in. That's where all the fighting comes in. The age of outrage. I mean, how much we're living in that, right? Everything's personal. Yeah. And, and it's a really sad thing. Uh, you know, the, what has happened is that, and I love elements of social media and technology and all that. There's a lot of really brilliant stuff that is that has happened as a result of that but it has empowered the darkness of what where people are stuck and because they're already in aloneness it it has been a way for them to have a voice which they need to have but the the voice has been the voice of the darkness or the voice of the putrefaction you know the things that are are not well inside the human soul and so you know, and, and then we gain an identity by it. It gives us a false identity that now we have an identity as a person who, who attacks this sort of thing, or now I'm part of a group identity of people who take a stand for, for this uh, in a vociferous sort of way. And, and all we're doing is demeaning the image and likeness of God um, in the other. And it's, that's a sad thing. But, but I think there's going to, I, I think that's part of the exposure. It's just like saying, Hmm. You know, we'll have an issue with the uh, with whoever the political leader is. You know, I'm Canadian, so I, I have a neutrality position, um, which is it's sort of fun. And uh, yeah, really, really. So, but 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 I'm like, you think that that person caused this kind of craziness? No, but they definitely were part of exposing it. Regardless of, they didn't have any intention to expose it, but. But the kind of conflict that erupted as a result is necessary. The unexposed is the unhealed. So, so when things are kind of going nuts, don't think that all is lost. That, that nutsness was there. And if we're going to heal the human soul, the, the brokenness of the human soul has to be exposed. And it usually doesn't come out quiet and nice. It usually comes out just ready to, to, to rip things apart in its own defense. And... It's like, hmm, that's a sad thing. It's a harmful thing. It's a hurtful thing, but it's a necessary thing. And, um, and this is why we can, take, we can take and embrace the life of Jesus who is in us, who can then um, uh, be the object of other people's scorn, not as an identity, 
but as a place that creates safety. So even, you know, some of the people who have been very uh, vociferous in their attacks against me, they're some of the same people who will call me up when their lives are falling apart and say, can we get together? Can I fly to Portland? Can I, can I come talk to you in the middle of the night? You've been there. You've taken the journey. You're safe. They trust you. Ah, yes. And, and that is a holy thing. You know, the, the book didn't give me identity worth and all those other things, but it did give me an invitation to walk on the holy ground of other people's stories. What changed what, what, what changed for you when you had that moment, you're living in, you know, working three jobs and living with four of your kids and having processed all of that, what changed for you when millions of copies sold? Nothing. Um, well, we didn't have to live in, the, in a, a little rental house. We actually, you know, were able to move to a bigger rental house. <laughs> and then we actually were able to buy a house. But um, so, you know, some of the material things changed, but... Thank God this didn't happen to me in my 30s because I'd have, I'd have just blew up the world in a, such a bigger way than I was uh, than I had the capacity to when I was 38, and um, the changes were were more the the invitation, the platform, uh, which is kind of a word I can't stand, but but you know it's, it's like branding, right? It's for cows and slaves, you know, you use branding for cows and slaves, and um, and I'm really not interested in all that kind of stuff. Um, but what changed was not the things that mattered, except the way this climbed inside the world of other people's stories and opened up encounter for them. And then they invited me in. And so I've been invited into some of the craziest things you can imagine. You know, the country of Croatia, for example, um, yeah, they informally adopted the shack as their book of the decade. And the Ministry of Culture asked me to come and speak to their country because it was so hurt and broken. I mean, when would that have ever happened? And who could have even imagined that that could happen? Yeah, that's not on a bucket list. No. See, and this is the beauty of not being in control. <laughs> when, mm. when you have to have control over your destiny or your future or your anointing or any of that kind of stuff then you limit uh, the availability of creativity. I mean, and so it's like, dream your biggest dreams. I'm telling you, they cannot match the things that, that God has in store for the human heart. And even if it's just the journey inward that frees you, that's enough. That's enough. I can go back to cleaning toilets. That's one of my jobs when I wrote The Shack. But I can go back to cleaning toilets tomorrow. I can, mm. and I'd be absolutely content. Um, and I don't need the shack. I don't need a movie. I don't need songs. I don't need another book. I, you know, and I've written a few now, but I don't need them. And um, they're not part of my identity. And if all of it went away, my kids would tell you this is true. And Kim would tell you it's true. And my friends would tell you it's true. But if all that went away, I'd be fine. Totally good. You know, that's refreshing. It's encouraging. Oh, good. Because otherwise we're going to end up trying to compete for success over some kind of you know, imagination of what that means and what it's supposed to look like. And you're always going to be at a deficit. When the thing about expectations is that they are, they are driving forces and they are not defined. So they never, they never stay the same. So if you happen to meet one, you'll run into five that you won't and uh, live up to. And when you learn to live without expectations, everything in your life becomes a gift. But when you have expectations, you draw lines everywhere beneath which nothing's acceptable as a gift. And um, it's just part of self-incrimination. I'd rather live with the expectancy of a child than the expectation of an adult. In so many ways. A couple more questions. What advice do you have for anybody experiencing some level of fame recognition platform? Just laugh. Learn to laugh at yourself, you know? And, and don't let it drive you toward isolation. And don't let it diminish your, your uh, being a, um, vulnerable and authentic. You know, it's smoke and mirrors. And, and I'm around a lot of people with notoriety and stuff, um, as well as a lot of people who have none, you know. And, uh, and the people who have a lot of notoriety and stuff, most of them are absolutely surprised that they have it. I mean, it's just like... 
most of them will say, I have no idea how I got here. It was accidental. There are some who will say, I worked so hard for this. And it's true. You know, sometimes it is a result of hard work. But a lot of times it's timing that you had nothing to do with. And, um, you know, the shack is part of what it is because of the Internet and because of the timing of everything. And I think timing is the sandbox of the Holy Spirit. So for one thing, if you're in the place of notoriety and platform and all that stuff, don't take yourself so damn serious and like you're all that in a bag of chips. And, um, you know, (laughs) um, if you want to know what's going on in a person's life, uh, as far as authenticity and vulnerability and all that, talk to their kids, talk to their spouse, talk to their friends. You know, that's that's the real world. And um, and then, you know, live in the grace of one day. Notoriety and platform does, is, is not a job description. And, um, and it's temporary. You know, if nothing else, you're going to die. <laughs> And, and so there's there's a time limit on this stuff, you know, and and a lot of it's yeah, and a lot of it's a lot more temporary than you think. So it's uh, it's it is live in the grace of the day, you know. To whom much is given, much is required. I get that, and that's not talking just about material stuff. It's talking about the freedom that's in your own heart, and and um, and. I think there is a God who is good all the time involved in the details of our lives. And therefore that um, notoriety and platform, notoriety and platform, that's not success in the mind of God, humility, kindness, the ability to love, the capacity to be present. And those are all success. And, um, and so, you know, don't, don't be confused uh, uh, one with the other. Um, the real world is what's going on in your own heart. And, um, um, and then out of that, you know, it's out, out of the innermost being that flow the rivers of living water, not out of what some accolade or some award or some prestigious thing, you know, people who look for identity in, in, in that kind of success, it always is empty because it's never enough. Uh, enough comes from relationship in the presence of a God who, who dwells in you. Mm, that's good. That's beautiful. Paul, we always want to bring in this last question, uh, and you shared today your journey toward health, uh, and and you know this crazy winding journey God t- took you on. You never would have chosen that way. Uh, but what practices do you have in your life to stay healthy? Being a truth teller, right? That's a that's a practice. I would imagine. I really mm-hmm. don't have a lot of them. Um, the the only real spiritual practice that I have is to stay present. That is to not be a future tripper and not create imaginations that don't exist and leave the present tense. Live in the grace of just one day. Um, My verse for this year is from Hebrews, and it might be the verse for the rest of my life. I'm not sure yet, but but for today it is. And And it says, encourage or add courage one to another So encourage one another as long as it is called today so that you're not swept away by the deceitfulness of brokenness. And I love that. It's like, stay in the day. This is Jesus, right? Where he says, take no thought for tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough issues of its own. Or Paul writes, take captive every empty imagination that raises itself up against the knowing of God. Control is an absolute myth. I could be dead by tomorrow. This is the world that I live in is what's right in front of me today. It's this conversation. Alan, this conversation with you, my entire life, everything that I've experienced has led up to this conversation. Right here, right now, it is the most important thing in my world. This is where I am. This is where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwell with me. This is where I get to engage with you, and you are right smack in the center of the relentless affection of Trinity. And so it's like, why would I want to be anywhere else? This is it. So the the spiritual practice would be staying in the grace of one day. And a good marker is if there is the presence or absence of joy. The absence of joy is indicative that you're not present because in the in the presence is fullness of joy. And um, and then how much fear to the degree that there's fear in my life to that degree I don't know how much I'm loved. That's First John, because there is no fear in love, and 
perfect love casts out fear, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. So I, I used to, when I was growing up in, in the religious environment I was, so people would say spiritual practices, it would mean like quiet time or, or you know, reading your Bible every day or attending church services or all those kinds of things. That, that stuff is, wo- some, you know, it's woven into my life in different ways, but it's not a practice at all. And um, I just wasn't built for it to begin with. I wasn't good at it. And, um, but, uh, but staying in the grace of one day, being authentic, um, being willing to ask for forgiveness when I, uh, when I know I've hurt someone, be, uh, continuing to tell the truth of, in all situations, acknowledging when I'm shading it, um, letting people in. Oh, there's a spiritual discipline. Rather than, yes, rather than staying isolated, you know. Let people um, in. Um, not not staying isolated, you know, telling people about what's going on inside your inner world. You know, and I, I think part of what has impacted so many people around me is that my give a damn was busted a long time ago, you know? And, and so it's like, this is where I'm at. This is, you know, where I'm hurting. This is what, what, what's breaking my heart in the moment. This is how I'm grieving. This is, you know, I got, just got triggered and, and I, I still do. I'm, but, but it takes me less time to deal with it than it used to, you know? And, and let me say this about my theology as incorrect as it might be it has allowed me to to change in transformative ways my capacity to love is so much greater than it used to be i'm such a better grandfather than i ever had the capacity as a uh, to be a father my kids all know it and we talk about it and and it's in not in shameful ways but in grieving ways you know i i have regrets and i've learned to live with those regrets as part of grief um, not part of shame. I don't let them become the whisper that tells me, see, you are a piece of crap, you know? Um, and uh, so I, I think, you know, responding to what's in front of me, uh, doing the inside work, because that's the work of the kingdom, because the kingdom of God is in you. You want to do the work of the kingdom? Do the inner work, because that's where the kingdom is. And and then it spills out into the world, uh, in which I don't try to control that. It's I don't make my choices based on outcomes at all. It's like, this is what's in front of me. What do I sense love is saying in this moment? That's a great, great place for us to end. Uh, Paul, it's been a gift. You, it's clear, feel settled. That's the word I kind of hear in your identity and, and in your spirit that you feel settled and also um, that you offer that as a gift to to many other people. And um it's not lost on me that many of these wounds in midlife and wrestling through in your late thirties, um, have resulted in such a great late maturity, um, in, in those days. So thanks for sharing your journey and your story with us, Paul, just so deeply appreciate this. You're welcome. Two way street. I, I live in an atmosphere of gratitude. I'm so grateful. Well, I'm going to leave you with an intense and, and maybe even sobering question is what secret are you keeping that's holding you back from freedom? What I heard in this conversation was a man who was once enslaved to himself and to lies, finding freedom, which is the story of the gospel, which is the story of redemption. And there are lies in all of our lives, things that we are living, lies, lies that we have believed from other people in our past and and in our present. And that, of course, shapes our future as well. But there is usually a lie or two or three that is holding us back from freedom. What is that for you? We want to continue to push people and maybe even pull people toward freedom. We say at Stay Forth Designs, we are not in the leadership business. We're in the freedom business. And we are hearing people be set free continue to take their next right step toward honesty, toward vulnerability. And I hope that this podcast episode inspired you back toward honesty with God, honesty with others, and ultimately toward greater freedom. Yeah. When we talk about health a lot on this podcast, we talk about it in preventative terms. Like we got to get healthy uh, for our souls so that we don't 
burnout. But some of you that are listening, um, you've you're on the other side of burnout, or you're on the other side of moral failure. And I just we hope that these episodes give you a, a shot of hope and encouragement that there is health on the other side, but that God wants to weave a story of redemption out of your failure, out of our failure. And so I hope this was encouragement. Um, I love the vulnerability of William and uh, I hope it spoke to you guys. So as we close out, I want to mention a way that you can partner with us, a way that you can support the podcast. We have partnered with Storehouse. They're doing amazing things to help kingdom leaders get projects off the ground or to help kingdom content creators continue to produce their content. And so we fall in the latter category. We love making this podcast, having these conversations, but we would also love your support. We are not afraid to ask for your support and your partnership because we truly believe in the conversations that we're having. So we will have a link in the show notes of how you can find out more about Storehouse and how you can partner with us. We have multiple tiers, uh, financial levels in which you can support us, and each tier comes with different rewards. And we think that these rewards are awesome. Uh, and they're they're really going to add value to your leadership. So other ways that you can support us is you can subscribe to the podcast. You can rate or review it on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to us on. That helps us a ton grow the podcast and get it to more leaders earbuds. And so thank you for tracking along with us. We are crazy enough to believe that you can lead for the long haul and not lose your soul along the way. So we'll see you in the next episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. We ain't focus so long.